You may be sitting with someone at the table that you don't know or you don't know well, or maybe you do know them well, and this will just help you get to know a little better. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to introduce yourself and uh, tell them what is something most people don't know about you. What is something, yeah, this isn't like deep, dark, secret time. I heard this, whoa. <laughs> well, yeah, like, like you're secretly a Cubs fan. I wasn't picturing, okay, yeah. What is something most people don't know about you? There we go. Test, test. We'll take about another 60 seconds.
start to About land 20 the plane seconds. here. <clears throat> How many of you guys heard some shocking information? Yes, isn't that something else? <laughs> How many of you gave shocking? Okay, there we go. All right, let's jump into this here. So we're in a series on the book of Revelation. And the very first uh, verse of the chapter one of the book of Revelation, it says it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. A lot of people approach it differently. They approach it as a revelation of the Antichrist, even though the Antichrist is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. Amen. All right. All right. And so uh, the verse one also tells us that it's a book of sign and symbols. And so, uh, so when you see a lamb in the book of Revelation, we don't picture a furry barnyard animal. We, whoa, what just happened there? All right. <laughs> Somehow a guitar pick stuck to my finger and just flung off. I don't know how that happened. So more shocking and amazing revelations happening right here. Yeah, so it's a book of signs and symbols. And so when we see things, we don't necessarily think it's a literal term when we see lampstands. It represents churches that we see. And so and, uh, the signs and symbols, they're primarily interpreted from the other 65 books of the Bible. So there's 66 books in the Bible. Uh, the other 65 books contain the keys to unlocking these symbols. You don't just kind of pick them out of the newspapers. I mean, people are trying to you know, get scud missiles and time travel and all sorts of crazy things out of the uh, book of Revelation. And you don't read the Bible with, uh, in, uh, in one hand with a newspaper in the other to interpret it. It actually had to make sense to the people it was originally written to. And they didn't have access to history and archaeology. They had access to the Bible, the other books of the Bible. Are we good? And another thing we've been looking at is a revelation of Jesus Christ to you will produce, a revelation of Je- will, will produce a revelation of Jesus Christ through you because as you see him, you become like him. So it's not just Jesus' unveiling, it's our unveiling too because we're becoming like him. All right, so there's the introductory part there. And people a lot of times talk about the last words of Jesus, and they picture the, uh, the final seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, but it's interesting, those aren't the final words of Jesus uh, his letters to the churches are the final words of Jesus. He just got resurrected in between. So let's continue looking at the final words of Jesus here in the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We'll be looking at the church of Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a description of Jesus that we got from chapter 1. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How'd you like to live there? I just sound like, yeah, how do I get there? Uh, take a right, right, yeah, so. Although, I, okay, this has nothing to do. I always, every time I hear the name Gehenna, though, don't you just think, I mean, that's like close to the Greek word Gehenna, which is the word for hell. I mean, it's like, anyway. I don't know what the taxes are like there, but anyway. <laughs> I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. We'll talk about him in a little bit here. Who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. I don't know if you saw the love sandwich there. He's like, hey, you did this good. You did this good. Now we're going to get to some correction. Then we're going to have some more nice stuff, right? Remember we talked about the love sandwich a couple weeks ago? Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. This is an Old Testament reference we're going to look at. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't know about you. That just sounds, you don't want that. Verse 17. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the reward that happens to the one who overcomes here. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, number one. I will give him a white stone 
number two, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amazing. So you guys ready to unpack this? All right, let's start in verse 12 again. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And the angel to the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, as Jesus is addressing these seven churches in Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it's not Revelations. It's Revelation. It's one revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's just a stupid little pet peeve, but I just feel obligated to say it. People are like, turn to the book of Revelations. I'm like, no, it's not plural. And I just made the mistake. So it's all coming back on me. <clears throat> So as he starts off, as he's addressing these churches, it's interesting. He gave a description of himself in chapter 1, and then he takes one of these descriptions of himself, and he reveals that to the church. And the very thing he's going to correct them on, if they would have this revelation of this aspect of him, they would be able to conquer and overcome. God will never ask you to do something unless he gives you the grace to do it. See, law requires grace enables and grace is a person. So when we have a revelation of that person, grace begins to flow into our life as, we, as it's revealed, as we trust in that. Grace flows into our life, and that's when God puts his super on your natural. See, it's never just all God or all people. There's kind of that camp that's like, it's all God, it's sovereign, if he wants it to happen. Um, yeah, just, just lay in bed all day and just see what happens. Just see if God's will is just manifesting in your life. You know, he said he'd bless the work of your hands, not your butt on the couch. Are we Okay. All right, I got my coach hat on a little bit here today, all right? So it's never just all God, you know, you just sit back, hey, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. We'll pray, and if nothing happens, we'll blame it on God's sovereignty. It's not how it happens. <laughs> but then you got the other camp, you know, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I've got to work, you've got to do this. And there's always this, there's always this God's part and our part. Our part is to trust him and do what he says. And his part is to make the results happen better than we could in our own strength. We enter into that rest. We're going to talk here in a second. So the church of Pergamon, his revelation to them is, here's a revelation of myself I want to give you. I'm the one who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. Now, does anyone recognize that reference, sharp two-edged sword? Okay, it's from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. So it's interpreting what that sword is. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of man. It's interesting, the sword is not meant to destroy his church, it's meant to heal his church. But it has two edges on it. It can cut and heal all in the same stroke. <laughs> Have you ever guys ever had God speak a word to you, and it hurts, but it also heals? Yeah. Anyone have a spouse that can do that too? Yeah, isn't that amazing? <laughs> like, no, they only got one edge, it just hurts, right? No amens, no squeezing of the hands, Okay. It has two edges, though. It blesses us and corrects us. It's interesting, though. It's not just any word of God that does that. The context of Hebrews chapter 4 is the context about rest. So let's talk about that in a second. In a second. Let's talk about it right now. <laughs> so in the Old Testament, they, uh, they actually rested on the seventh day. They had a Sabbath day rest. And so they were to cease from all of their labors. They were to completely rest. And they were to reflect on the creation account and their deliverance out of Egypt. So it was a time where they physically rested. And so now when they got into the promised land, it was another picture of rest, of listen, all your, your striving in the wilderness is over. All the promises of God are now available to you. It's rest. So you had two physical pictures in the Old Testament of not working, but getting something. Remember when they entered in the promised land, what did it say? They got houses they didn't build. 
They got vineyards they didn't plant, right? The land's flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's awesome. They got rewarded based on what someone else's did the work for. Okay, it's a picture of the cross. We are getting rewarded based on what Jesus did, not on what we did. We're walking into this salvation. So two physical pictures in the Old Testament. But now in the New Testament, he says, those physical pictures were of a spiritual reality. Now rest is a spiritual realm that you can rest in. That's the whole teaching of Hebrews chapter 4. And so this sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth that cuts and heals, it's the word that proceeds from rest. People can use the Bible as a weapon. People can use it to beat you up. Old covenant preaching tries to get you to improve Adam. Tries to get you to do better in your own strength. Listen, you need to double your efforts. You know, Jesus rose from the dead. You can't even get out of bed an hour early to pray? Well, that's trying to improve Adam. It's laying that guilt on people. Here's a little side note. This isn't in my notes. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Doesn't everyone just love an entire chapter on curses? Don't you just love? Cursed, it's like, cursed will you be if you do this. And it says, and the people with one voice said, amen. Cursed will you be. Like it's a whole chapter of curses. And with one voice, they say, amen to the curses. The next chapter is Deuteronomy 28. He says, blessed will you be in the field. I'll bless your kids. I'll bless, I'll bless, 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 bless. Not one time do they say amen. <laughs> They're not like, I'll tell you what. You want to get people shouting amen in the church? You get out there and you preach Old Testament law and make them feel terrible and they start shouting them down. They'll be like, amen, that's good preaching. He stepped on my toes. No, he didn't. He tried to resurrect the dead man, Adam. New covenant preaching doesn't try to improve Adam. It tries to mature you into the new man, Christ. All right, that one was free. Thank you. You're amening the blessings. Thank you. Thank you. It's It's working. So Jesus is revealing himself as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword, but that word that's coming out of his mouth, the context there is a word that's coming from that realm of rest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. I don't have it up on the slides. I didn't even write down the reference. I just wrote it down here. Somewhere in Hebrews chapter 4. Now God has offered us this same promise, ready for this, of entering into his realm of resting in confident faith. Wow, what a picture. Rest is actually a spiritual realm that uh, that we enter into. When you're in rest, you stop trying to do something. I don't know if you guys, when you're, when you're relaxing in the hammock, you're not trying to mow the grass. You're not working, right? So the word that flows from rest, that's what he wants to give to his church in Pergamum. Here's what I like to do. How about we just take a moment this morning, and I want you to think about a situation that's coming up this week, and what is, what is a situation, a relationship, an incident, a meeting, that you need to approach from the realm of rest. There's, a, there's, a pro, there's an approach where you can try to make it happen. You can dream and scheme, and maybe you got final exams. Maybe you got an interview at work. Maybe you got a difficult situation. Maybe you're living in a difficult situation. You can try to manipulate it and dream it and scheme it and make it happen, or you could enter it from a realm of rest. Remember, realm of rest doesn't mean I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. God may have you have a tough conversation with somebody, but you are not, the results are not up to you. I'm ceasing from my labors. I don't have to manipulate this thing. I'll tell you what, so many Christians... Oh, boy, we're not going into this song. This is what the Bible says. It says manipulation is of the sin of witchcraft. You're dreaming and scheming and trying to control your kids and trying to control your spouse and this and that. What if you approached it from the realm of rest and had the touch of heaven on it rather than the touch of darkness on it? I've heard some offerings from preachers that were from a spirit of manipulation, making you feel like if you don't give, then God's going to come curse you. 
And people will say amen to that from Deuteronomy 27. I got some good news for you. Jesus became the curse of the law. There is no more curses for you. But when I teach this stuff at other churches, people get so mad at me when I tell them they're not cursed. There is no generational curse. Your generation died when you were buried with Christ through baptism. Now you're united with Christ. He ain't got no curses in his genealogy. But my grandfather was a mason. Final clause of the new covenant. I don't care if your grandfather was a shaman, a witch doctor, Hitler. I don't care. The final clause of the new covenant is God will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. If God's not holding your sins against you, he's not going to hold your great uncle's sins against you. <clears throat> Hashtag duh. Come on, guys. <clears throat> Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a situation this week, and I want you to pray at your tables. I want you to go ahead and pray. You know what, Jim? I, not Jim. God, I need to approach this situation. Jim and God. Yeah, let's not confuse those two. <laughs> so far, nobody has, thank goodness. Not even close. But the, um, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. <laughs> just watch me work out. You'll know. And so um, I always see those people in like the before pictures, and I'm like, I would love to have arms like that lady. I'm always like, man, <laughs> so like just the before picture. That looks pretty good to me. Anyway, here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to just, let's take a moment but just before the Lord as an exercise, and then I want to have us pray at our tables just for each other, just to encourage each other. Not everybody's comfortable praying out loud. There'll usually be in the room that's, there'll be two or three extroverts at your table, unless you've got a smaller table. Let the extroverts can pray. Let's not make the introverts pray if they don't want to. Okay? That's totally fine. There's, there's nothing, no judgment for that. But I want you to, Lord, what's a, what's a situation I need to approach from that realm of rest, of recognizing, God, you're with me. I, don't, I can't make this thing happen. I'm trusting you for the results. Do you see the difference between, oh, I'm worried and upset and this and that versus, God, I don't know how it's all going to turn out, but I've got you. Okay? So let's do that. Just take a moment of that. and just Let's, say, you know, let's take 60 seconds between you and the Lord, and I want us to just pray, and then we'll get back into the text. You guys good? So Holy Spirit, what is the situation I need to approach from a realm of rest? I'll see you in 60 seconds. Here's what I want you to do. Just partner up with one other person, because if you do the whole table, it'll just uh, take longer than I want to give you guys. And so can you just say, yeah, partner up with one other person and just say, hey, here's the situation. And man, you can just pray a two or three sentence prayer. Lord, I just bless that situation. Let them recognize you're there with them. Just whatever comes. It's, God hears your heart more than your vocabulary. So let's take about uh, 30 seconds each. So share the need, pray, switch, share the need, pray. Partner up with one other person. If you have an odd number of people, then someone doesn't get prayer. I'm just kidding. You can just do three.
All right, so why don't you guys go ahead and switch? And so if the other person didn't get prayer yet, go ahead and switch. Let's take about another 15 seconds. Again, I feel guilty for telling you to stop praying for each other. It seems wrong for a pastor to do that. But if we could wind it down, that would be good. Yeah, here we go. I feel like you're winding it up, but anyway, so. All right, let's look at, uh, let's look at the name Pergamum. And so, again, this is a book of signs and symbols. There was actually a city in Asia Minor in the first century uh, called Pergamum, but it also has a, has a meaning. And here's the, here's the meaning. How are we guys doing? All right. <laughs> You're like, I got to talk louder over Jim's voice. I can't hear what the person next to me is saying, right? <laughs> What's that droning noise? Oh, it's Baker. All right, yeah, let's get going. So the name Pergamum, here's what it means. It means mixed marriage or polygamy. Isn't that interesting? It's not talking about a racial or ethnic issue by any stretch of the imagination, but the church was dealing with a mixture of law and grace. There's an interesting passage in Romans chapter 7, and it says this. It says that um, a person who is... It's an interesting uh, analogy of marriage. It says that if a person's married to someone, they're only bound to that person as long as that, uh, that spouse is alive. If that first spouse dies, they're free to remarry. And it says this. It says that the law was your first husband. You were bound to it by covenant. You were born under the law. But if you die to the law, now you're free to marry another, Jesus Christ. Okay? Isn't that it? It's in the Bible. I'm not, it's not Rebel. I'm just telling you what the Bible says there. All right. So, so, help us, Jesus, man. All right. And so, what's my point here? What am I trying to say? Pergamum, mixed marriage, polygamy. Here's the deal. Is there's people who are trying to be married to two husbands. They're trying to be married to the law, feeling guilty, 
feeling shame, condemnation, I'm not good enough. No, you're not good enough. That's why you died to that. Your first husband, the law, is doing nothing but telling you you're not good enough. Here's what Hebrews said. It's a ministry of condemnation. I'm not going to say, have you ever experienced a marriage where your husband, I'm not going to do that. But that's what the law was like. It was like a spouse who was continually nagging. Every time you tried your best, and if you just got one thing wrong, it just reminded you of that one thing. That's the law. Okay, that's what a lot of people are under. A lot of people love that kind of preaching. That just tells you how bad they are. And so, but you've got a new husband. And you know what? He's saying, you know what? You can actually become like me. And he's speaking words of life and encouragement to you. And so here they have this church that's struggling with a mixed marriage. They're trying to be married at the same time. Here's some good news. Jesus would be an adulterer if your first husband was still alive. But you died to the law. You're not under the law. You're not trying to please God with your own human efforts. God is only pleased by Jesus' efforts. And so you're married to that. And now, are you ready for this? God delights to treat you as if you were Jesus himself. Well, that's some good news here. Makes me want to run at such good news here. You're like, Jim, if my old man is dead, why do I still act like this? Because you learned some habits from your first marriage. So imagine you're in another marriage now, and you're reacting uh, to your spouse, and like, where did you learn that from? Oh, I actually learned that from my first marriage. You can learn bad habits from your first marriage. That's all that is, guys. The old man is dead, but you have some uh, bad habits, and so now that's, you're being transformed by renewing your mind. I'm learning to think differently. I'm, not, I'm learning to, see, to not, never see myself apart from Christ because God never does. Think about that. God never looks at you apart from Christ, so you shouldn't either. So here they are, Pergamum. And so here comes the love sandwich in verse 13. Jesus is going to commend them, he's going to correct them, and then he's going to talk about what they get rewarded with when they overcome. Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. God knows the problems of your city and the situation you're in. Pergamum, it was the official cult center of Roman emperor worship in Asia, which demanded absolute allegiance. To worship in Rome, the only worship you were allowed to do meant you were to worship the emperor. It was kind of an interesting deal. The only worship that could happen was the guy who ran the whole thing. And so to worship any other god besides the emperor, whether it was Nero, whether it was Domitian, uh, those, those Roman emperors, was blasphemy, and it was punishable by death. That's not a very empowering government. Like, like, you think ours is bad? Well, you know, no one's punishing you by death if you don't uh, worship Biden, okay? And so th- there we are. Okay, I shouldn't even brought that up, so... People are like, oh, politics. All right, let's, let's keep going. There was one religion, and you worship the guy who runs the place. And so Rome had become the, Satan, uh, the center of Satan's activity in the West, as we'll find out in le- later chapters. Pergamum had become the, his throne in the East. He says this, Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny the faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Ancient church tradition tells us that Antipas was a disciple of John. Remember uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, same John. John the Beloved, who uh, reclined at Jesus' breast, one of the disciples. He's the one who's writing this book of Revelation. Antipas was a disciple of John, and John ordained him as the bishop over the church of Pergamum. Remember, uh, I think it was last time we looked at the church of Smyrna, he ordained Polycarp, and Polycarp became a martyr. Here he ordained Antipas, and Antipas became a martyr. And so, the, uh, let's see what I want to tell you about him. He was believed to have been martyred in the year A.D. 92 after refusing to deny his faith and make a sacrifice to the gods. Um, Just for all you nerds out there, 
this is why I would, uh, I, I would place the writing of the book of Revelation after the year 90, because we wouldn't have known about Antipas if it had been written in 70. So all you partial preterists out there, there you go. Okay. That was just for the nerds. All right. All right. Rachel got it. There you go. So I bless your nerdness. There we go. So the Romans, though, they had a terrible way of, of executing people. Church history tells us how it, how, how it happened to Antipas. So they had this giant altar that looked like a um, bronze bull. It was kind of like a giant bowl shaped like a bull. And on the bottom of it, it, uh, it had like an like a opening of a hatch. And so they placed Antipas inside, sealed it up, and then literally roasted him alive. And so Jesus is referring to saying, I saw that happen. And he said, I love how he says this, you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. So that's the, that's the kind of environment it's going against. Interesting, the name Antipas means against all. So Antipas was a real person, but his name personifies the steadfastness, steadfastness of the Pergamum church in resisting persecution. So he's saying, listen, guys, you're resisting persecution. You're doing some things great. But here it comes in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Everyone say, teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block. Balak was an evil king of Moab. This is an Old Testament story he's referring to. I'm going to break it down in just a second. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. <clears throat> okay, you guys ready for this? Balaam was a true prophet of God who compromised his morals for money, and he was hired to curse a people who were not cursed. They were blessed. You ready for this? So uh, Numbers chapter 22, verse, uh, Numbers 22 through 24, those three chapters there. So you got this evil king of Moab named Balak. Israel is moving along, and they come right next to his region, and he's freaking out. He's like, look at them. Their numbers are too great. Look what they just did all these other enemies. God is with them. So he says, I, I, he hires this prophet named Balaam. He says, listen, I know you hear from God. You've got favor with God. And if you bless people, they get blessed. If you curse people, they get cursed. I want you to curse Israel. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Long story. So um, he finally says, okay, I'll, I'll go check it out. I'm, I'm not going to do anything about it unless God, God already told him not to. But he's like, I'll do this. So how much money? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. He says, it doesn't matter if you filled my entire tent with uh, silver and gold. doesn't matter. And yet he kind of, that's how, that's how compromise starts a lot of times. I'm not going to do it, but I'm just going to kind of check it out. You know, let me just check this website. I'll see what it has. And so, the, um, and so Balaam, Balaam the prophet goes up with Balak to the king, and he goes and he looks at Israel on this mountain. And when he, go, and he tells the king, he says, okay, I'm going to go inquire the Lord. Give me seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. Go sacrifice them all. I'm going to go inquire the Lord. So he's doing some spiritual activity. But he already has something in his heart. And so he says, uh, he says God, can I curse them? <clears throat> he comes back down, and as he wants to curse them, <clears throat> he wants to get paid. He wants to do this. As he tries to curse them, blessing comes out of his mouth. <clears throat> and the king is furious. He's like, listen, I'm paying, you, <clears throat> I'm paying you to curse these people, and you'll bless them. <clears throat> he goes up, and so he goes, well, let's look at it from a different angle. So he takes them to a different part of the mountain, shows them a different part of the camp. Same thing takes him to the third realm. I don't know if this is representative of third days, death, burial, and resurrection. But in the third realm, he, uh, he sees him, and he has such a blessing. Here's what he, pronounce, he pronounces the greatest blessing over him now. He's trying to curse, bless, trying to curse, bless, trying to curse, bless. And in this, uh, this one, he says, God sees no iniquity in them at all. Like, God is correcting them nonstop. The people of Israel were terrible. He's correcting them. Why did he say that? Because Balaam was viewing them when they were camped and they were in rest. 
I want you to think about how they camped. That's what it said. The, the, the camp was at rest. Here's how they camped. The tabernacle, which was a, was a, is a picture of Jesus, um, the furniture in the tabernacle is ranged in the shape of a cross. Every piece of furniture inside the tabernacle speaks of an aspect of what Christ did. So you had 12 tribes of Israel, three tents to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. All the tents were facing the cross. And God, when he saw them at rest, feasting on the cross, focusing on the cross, he said, I don't see any iniquity in them. Even though they were people who had issues, when they focused on Jesus and were at rest in that, he saw no iniquity in them. And so they could not curse what God had blessed when they were focusing on the cross. That's something good right there, guys. They were at rest focusing on nothing but Christ and the cross, and you just can't curse people like that. So since Balaam couldn't curse what God had blessed, this is a tactic of the enemy. If he can't get you to feel guilty about your past sin, if he can't put you under the old covenant law and get you to try to please God through your human efforts, and I mean, I hear this all the time, I'm just not good enough. You're right. (laughs) You're not. That's why he killed that old man and put you into his son, who is good enough. So if the enemy can't get you to get under the law and feel guilty, he'll try to get you to compromise. So it says, the Balaam, it said that so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you see in Numbers 22, he taught people to turn, uh, turn to idol worship. And they were kind of mixing, you know what, we're, we're kind of, God loves us, he's good to us, we're under grace, it's not that big a deal. You know, God, it's in God's job description to forgive us. I mean, you can hear it in people's language today with a, you know, people call it hyper grace. I say all grace is hyper, <laughs> okay? And so there, I think there's a, a distorted grace, but to say that, gra- that hyper grace, I don't know. Actually, in Romans 8, Paul refers to grace as hupa charis, meaning hyper grace. So Paul himself calls it hyper. So grace is extreme, it's extravagant, it's scandalous, but there is a form of it that's distorted and it says, you know what, it doesn't matter how you act, God's going to love you anyway. Sin does not change your relationship with God. It changes your relationship with the devil. Listen, God loves you regardless. He loves you unconditionally. It doesn't mean he's necessarily pleased with your behavior. It doesn't mean there's not sowing and reaping for your, for your behavior. Okay? But it doesn't change your relationship with God. Romans 6 says you become a slave to whomever you obey, whether slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. So you open a door for the devil. Compromise is a welcome mat for the demonic. And so here we have these people in Pergamon. Their morals were not being shaped by the living word of God, but by the contemporary culture and by these false teachers who were teaching them the way of Balaam. Hey, it's okay to just compromise a little here. Look, Jim, there's so much grace. You can do what you want. It doesn't matter if we want to live together. Let's just forget about the whole marriage thing. It's okay to worship Caesar. God knows your heart. You can have all these sexual escapades. You can do what you want. We're under grace. Again, Sin does not change your relationship with God, but it does change your relationship with the devil. It opens up a, a chance for him to come in there. So these are the teachings of Balaam. Verse 15. So also you, have, also you have some who hold... You know what? If you're in sexual sin, I would just encourage you, apply this to yourself. I'm not, we're not going to do a raise the hand or anything, but I, guys, it matters. Okay? It has consequences in this life. And so if you're in that, whatever form it is, I got some good news for you. There's freedom for it. But it's going to come from changing your appetite by feeding on Jesus. Not from through sheer willpower and guilt and what if I get caught and I feel terrible. That doesn't help. 
Okay, the, the answer is going to be camping facing the tabernacle, focusing on Jesus, getting a revelation of his love. Guys, it's his love and grace that changes you. That's what, that's, it's the good news of Jesus. What, he loves me? When I, when I get a revelation of that, it begins to change my appetites so I will sin less on accident than ever could on purpose under the law. Verse 15, so you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so we talked about them. I think they were in the church of Ephesus maybe uh, a, a couple um, messages ago. So what are the doctrines of the Nicolaitans? I mean, just in brief, it was that people should be subjugated to spiritual authorities. It was kind of abusive spiritual leadership. Everybody needs to have a covering, and you need to obey that spiritual leader over your, over your life, even at the expense of obeying God. If this leader tells you to do it, even if God's not saying it, it's okay because you were obeying the leader God will understand. Well, there's stuff like that going on today. <clears throat> there's some dominating leaders out there who want to make you dependent on them rather than God. Let me give you a sure sign of a false teacher, false apostle, false prophet. Anyone who is drawing people to themselves and making you dependent upon them. Listen, you need me to give you a word of God. <clears throat> hey, I told you not to marry that person. You need to listen to me. I told you to marry that person. Guys, <laughs> the only thing a Christian leader can do of any good is get you connected to the vine so you're receiving life from Jesus himself. <clears throat> if they're making you dependent upon them, they're a false teacher. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. How we doing? I feel feisty. (laughs) Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, repent. You need to change the way you're thinking about these things. And he's coming at them with the sword of his mouth from that, that, that word of God from a position of rest. Listen, it's all done. You don't have to be under somebody's yoke. You don't have to be under the law. Let me just say this real quick. This, I'm just slipping this in. There's different levels of correction that God has for you, okay? Uh, the simplest and easiest level of correction is in your dreams, all right? Most of your dreams are corrective, okay? They are for you, not for everybody else. I'm going to repeat that again because some of you don't believe me. Most of your dreams are corrective. They're, not, they're, they're just for you, not for somebody else, Okay, so people who are novices in dream interpretation and hearing the voice of the Spirit, they always think that what they have is for somebody else. Sometimes you have a dream with somebody else in it. It's not about that person. They just symbolize something. Okay, how many of you have had a dream with Bill Johnson or Heidi Baker or something in it, right? Like, it wasn't probably about Heidi, but Heidi probably represents some type of apostolic missions or something like that, right? <clears throat> how many of you had a dream with me in it? It probably wasn't about me. Unless it was this lady right down here, <laughs> and my pecs were pumping or something, yeah. <laughs> no, that's my dream, that it would actually happen, right? <clears throat> All right. Especially if you're having a hard time about this person, and you have a dream about them, and you're dreaming of something negative, and it's just confirming everything. Guys, a lot of times what's happening is, is you're venting on the inside of us, and the Lord is really kind to allow our soul to be expressed and for us to see what's happening. This is always a starting point for interpreting a dream. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me personally? Okay? Sometimes you get dreams that aren't correcting you. It's an invitation to intercede and pray for somebody else. So let's say you see a negative situation about somebody. It could be God revealing the enemy's plan, and now you have an assignment to pray. It doesn't mean that it's already happened. It doesn't mean that they're fallen in all this type of sin. Even if it does, it's not for you to go. and It's for you to begin to pray about this thing. How are we doing? Those are assignments of prayer. If, you, if God is revealing these things to you 
and you don't pray, your dream life will dry up and you'll begin wondering, how come I don't have dreams anymore? How are we doing? So what's the alternative? God, I repent. I didn't even recognize this. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to correct me in my dreams. I'm asking you to show me who to intercede for in my dreams. And if you begin to respond to that, they'll come in like a flood. How's that sound? I'll tell you what. It's a lot better to have the sword of his mouth correct you in your dreams than to correct you publicly. Okay? Another level of correction was... I'm not, I'm not hitting all the levels of correction. I just want to just hit a couple. Another one is when a, someone who is spiritual comes in your life and speaks a word of grace and truth to you. It's painful to get publicly called out by somebody, publicly, even just one-on-one. I remember I was in youth group, and I was like a youth leader. And I, I, I was just putting on a show in worship. And so I was, on the outside, it looked like I was worshiping, but on the inside, it probably looked, I was actually checking out girls. And so um, it, it probably looked something like, thank you, Jesus. Who's that girl? Is she single? You know, it was just like, so like my heart is like thinking about anything, but on the outside, it just looked like it looked incredible. It looked spiritual. I remember we had a guest speaker come in. This was, I mean, I wasn't even aware I was doing it. I was just kind of just going through the motions and everything. And so the speaker comes up and he uh, whispers in my ear. He says, "Um, hey, son, I don't know what your name is, but God says you're one of his choice ones and you don't have to fake it. You're better than that. And I, I honestly didn't even realize that I did it. I remember I, I just got down on my knees and I just started crying. I was like, God, I didn't even know I was doing this. And I'm, it's like, boy, I would have rather had it in a dream. <laughs> but there's another level. And there's actually a ministry in Galatians. It's the ministry of admonition. Conflict resolution is we've got a problem. Admonition is you've got a problem and I'm here to help. So you can read Galatians 6 about how to do that. It's a different skill set. It takes a lot of gentleness. You can't have any sin or pride in your heart about correcting them, all those type of things. So... All right. If you don't get corrected by the Lord, um, the Lord has a surefire way to correct me. It's called my wife's dream life. <laughs> She'd be like, um, Jim, uh, the Lord says he misses you. You need to stop being so bad. I'm like, oh, my word. So, all right. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of your mouth. Okay? So even though this letter isn't addressed to you personally, you can, uh, you, can, you can apply these things personally. What is it the Lord is, is speaking to you about these things? All right, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what are they going to have to conquer in order to receive this war? They're going to have to uh, uh, overcome the compromise. Overcome that mixture of law and grace, that mixture of the pure truth with these false teachers that are saying you can compromise. So this is, this is the church that's being tempted to compromise in a couple of different ways. But the one who will overcome, I like how the Passion Translated it says, I will let him feast on the hidden manna. What a great picture, feasting on the hidden manna. He says, if, instead of eating food sacrificed to idols, you can feast on the hidden manna. Someone's starting to get this. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, you know, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they ate manna. They had bread that came down from heaven. Does anyone know what the word manna means? What is it? Yeah, you're right. What is it? I was just kidding. The word manna literally means what is it? It's this mystery realm. It's this bread from heaven that's mysterious that we, we totally don't even know what it is. It's, you know, some people think it's like the food of angels, angel food cake. I don't even know what it is. So the word manna literally means what is it? And here's the thing. Jesus said that manna that came down from heaven, it was actually him. So in some mysterious realm, the food that they ate in the desert that sustained them and miraculously kept them alive, kept them healed, 
Uh, you know, their shoes didn't wear out, all these type of things. For 40 years in the desert, that, that supernaturally sustained them. He's saying, when you feed on, he said, that was me. And now when you feed on me, you get those same benefits. I am that manna. The hidden manna refers to the glorious relationship we have with the mystery of Christ within us. The hidden manna is now inside of you. In the tabernacle, remember, there was the outer court, the inner court, the holy place. and the holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the, Co- the Ark of the Covenant was a hidden bowl of manna. Remember, there was a golden jar of manna on the inside. You are now that tabernacle, and you now house that hidden jar of manna, Christ within you. And you can feast on that manna anytime you want. Your relationship with Jesus is no longer external. He's not in a galaxy far, far away. I'm not praying off to some horizon. The secret place is now right here. You have a hidden jar of manna. You are the tabernacle. We don't relate to him externally anymore. The throne room has moved inside of you right now. This is going to be important when we get to chapters 4 and 5. The one who sits on the throne is in you, which means the throne is now in you. So it means all the activity of chapter 4 and 5 are internal as well as an external heavenly location. So the hidden manna, you can have a feast. Jesus is saying, if you will choose me over these earthly pleasures, over the bondage of the law, I will give you ecstasy, a feast of bliss exceeding anything this world has and the pleasures of sin that that can give you. He says, I'll give you more than that. I will let you feast on this hidden what is it? This mystery realm. He's saying, take a manna feast and watch it manifest. All right, that was bad. Come on, somebody. That's the best I got. I got nothing better than that today. White stone. He says, I'll give you a white stone. There's a lot of different opinions on this, but it makes me, uh, there's this, boy, talk about a mystery realm, book, book of Revelation, something. In the, book, in the Old Testament, the, high, the, the priests, they had this crazy breastplate, and they had these two stones in it. And so one was called the Umim, and one was called the Thumim. Does anyone remember this? They're not in a whole bunch of places. Some people like, make it their whole life study to figure out these things. So I don't want to go to that extreme. So I don't think anyone totally knows what it is. But here's what it looks like. Is there was this, the, the high priest would come into the presence of the Lord, and if Israel was to move, then the white stone would light up. If they were to stay, then the black stone would light up. And so if they, um, if, if that's literally, so they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so this is how God guided them. He guided them through these, it was called the light of perfections. Was, uh, it, was, it was literally what umim and thumim means, the light on the perfection. <clears throat> He's saying, I'm going to give you this, this white stone. <laughs> you now have the Holy Spirit. He says, you got this white stone. You now have the Holy Spirit leading you. The, the, white, the word white there can be translated as if it's glowing from the outside, not just like light shining on it, but glowing from within. Hold on, I wrote this down. This is good. He has a glowing glory in you, a blazing glory of Christ that lights up when you serve his purposes and when you do his will, because you're never more excited than when you're serving his heart. You now have this thing on the inside where you know when you are coming alive and you're doing God's will. You know when you're pleasing him. That's your white stone. When you're doing the will of God, this white stone, the pleasure will flood your soul and eternity pours into you and lights up that white stone. Some people think it's the, the burning coal of fire that Isaiah had his lips sizzled with. You guys remember that? He's saying, I will give you a fire that will ignite your words and spirit, and your ministry will be powerful for me. Another picture it could be is a, is a picture of acquittal. 
We see in, uh, in Acts 26 and some other places that when someone was declared innocent, they would receive a white stone. I don't care which one of these it is. They all kind of sound good to me. I don't know about you guys. So uh, <clears throat> whether God is going to sizzle my lips and purify my words so that they can be like fire on a dry land, whether it means that, uh, you know, on the inside out, I've got this spiritual renewal happening and I know God's will. He's leading me not by the outside with a, the, a, a lit stone, but through a lit spirit. And he's declared me innocent, completely free. I don't care which one it is, I'll take them all because they're all true somewhere in the Bible, all right? A new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is really precious. So upon that stone is your name. And do you know you have a spiritual name between you and the Lord that nobody else knows? It's his nickname, and he calls you. It may not be Bubba or Sweetie Pie, but he has a name that he calls you in the spirit realm. And he's, he's going to give you a relationship so powerful, it's only known to you and God. It's his language. And when he speaks it out, you're going to know he's calling you by name. Guys, there's secrets between you and God and mysteries between you and God that he has that nobody else would ever understand. It's vanity to try to get everybody to agree with you on stuff. Because God's showing you things that may be of a completely different perspective than what somebody else is learning. There are mysteries and secret truths that are meant for you for private consumptions. Other will not know, others will not know them. They're not meant to know them. They're there between you and your lover, God. So take that white stone, even if it sizzles your lips, if it burns you from the inside out, take that stone of acquittal that you're not guilty, you're innocent free, and go into the glory of God and find out what that name is that he has written on that stone, those mysteries for you. How's that sound? That's it. All right. Yeah, yay God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at uh, those, which of those three things most excites you? Because you got to make this personal. Oh, that's cool. You know, oh, hidden manna, white stone, new name. I want, you to, I want you to at least take one of those things, <clears throat> the hidden manna, feasting on that Christ within, the mysteries that he has for you, uh, that white stone, whether it's acquittal, sizzling the lips, or that glowing uh, spirit-led life from the inside out, or that new name, that intimacy, whatever. Which of those three most excites you? So I want you to just take 60 seconds with the Lord. I want you to think about those, and I want you to just begin to, in your language, in your words, I mean, you don't have to do it out loud so everybody can hear, but I want you to just begin to talk to God. There's something about putting language to the things in our heart that makes them stronger. So just take 60 seconds, which of these uh, most excites you, and talk to the Lord about it.
why don't you do this? Just turn to the person next to you and just tell them which one of those three most excites you and why, just a sentence or two. And then uh, just pray for each other. Just bless them with that. Lord, I just think you're going to give them revelation about their new name, their new nature, who you made them to be. Just take about 30 seconds each, and we're going to wrap it up. If you haven't switched yet, go ahead and switch. I just take them another 15 seconds and we'll wrap it up. All right, I want to pray for you guys in a second. But I want you to. Uh, just your kind of takeaway is there's a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's the word of rest, and it will help you overcome any compromise. It'll help you overcome any kind of mixed marriage to the law, and he wants to reward you with some awesome things. And so just keep receiving that word, of, uh, that word that comes from rest. So, Lord, I love you. We love you. You're the best. And I pray for your people today that we will, we will camp centered around the tabernacle, <laughs> that we will have our eyes on Jesus and his cross, and Lord, uh, they didn't even have to uh, worry about the enemies coming on their back. You said you would be their rear guard. So Lord, as we focus on you, we don't have to worry about the enemy, God. You're going to take care of all that. So I bless your people in the name of Jesus. Amen. We got Rogers.